You're listening to the Monocle Daily, first broadcast on the 4th of January 2023 on Monocle 24. Israel's new far-right government and its changing approach to Russia. Is English pushing out local languages? And what should our children really be learning at school? I'm Emma Nelson. The Monocle Daily starts now. Hello and welcome to the Monocle Daily, coming to you from our studios here at Midori House in London. I'm Emma Nelson and my guests, Daniela Pellet and Yossi Meckelberg, will discuss some of the day's big stories, including the return of US consular services to Cuba and why Israel's foreign minister has enraged Kyiv. Plus, how does one become a professional whistler? Stay tuned because all that and more is coming up right here on the Monocle Daily. I'm delighted to say joining me around the microphones today is uh, Daniela Pellet, Managing Editor at the Institute for War and Peace Reporting, and by Yossi Mackelberg, Associate Fellow at Chatham House and a lecturer in international relations at the University of Roehampton. Welcome both. Hello. Good evening. How are Hello. we doing? Very good, thank you. What's happening in your life, Daniela Pellet? Uh, I got back from travels to Israel in the early hours of this morning, so I... I uh, with some anecdotes that I'm sure will come in useful. Excellent. What were you doing at well, the... Um, not a great deal, <laughs> really. <laughs> not a great deal. I mean, I, I, I wish I could say something something grand, like witnessing, you know, the deterioration of, of democracy and, and so on and, and so forth. But there was more uh, donut eating. That's, that's, uh, a, that's a perfectly good reason to go to democracy <laughs> watching. Yeah. How about you, Yossi? Any great travels to eat donuts? No, I just been to Budapest just before Christmas, right. and the great news was actually because we had to stay at home, having a new puppy. So this, this was the great news. I love user. this. We're getting two of the sort of the sharpest minds <laughs> on earth. In, yeah, I know. And said, well, I ate donuts, and another one got a puppy. <laughs> this is brilliant. This is this is wonderful. Well, look, um, this should set you up quite well for a, a lively half hour. Um, let's deal with the serious stuff first, and we will of course, begin with Israel, because what is Israel's role when it comes to dealing with Russia and the war in Ukraine? Russia's foreign minister, Sergei Lavrov, has called his Israeli counterparty, like Cohen, earlier this week to congratulate him on taking up his new post and to discuss bilateral and regional issues. The call was requested by the Russians, but what does it mean for Israel? Well, um, Daniela, I probably will start with you. Why would Russia want to get in a call so early to Israel's new government? Well, everyone has got interests um, here. Uh, and when it comes to Ukraine, Israel has been a little bit uh, on the fence. It's got very, very serious um, reasons not to want to uh, upset Russia, i.e. The, the, the skies over Syria that Russia uh, controls and it wants to retain the ability to strike um, uh, Hezbollah and other targets um, there. And also... You know, many complicated um, diplomatic and uh, economic ties as well. At the same time, uh, Israel has expressed uh, sympathy for Ukraine. Um, the previous Prime Minister, Naftali Bennett, at one point tried to make an, an effort to, to position himself as a sort of interlocutor, somebody who could... Um, uh, be a go-between, but as others, including Emmanuel Macron, have found, it doesn't really work that well. 
uh, Ukraine would really like some of Israel's uh, high-tech um, weaponry and uh, missile defense system. Ukraine um, is not getting them. Israel doesn't want to upset Russia. So that's the kind of situation uh, where we are now. And, and so far, uh, Israel and Ukraine are kind of having these diplomatic skirmishes over issues like international justice. Um, Israel is quite happy now to take a little bit more of a hardline um, view. Well, let's try and work out what was said during this, this conversation, Yossi. Um, there's been an Israeli readout of, of the phone call. Not all of it, I don't think. Um, Eli Cohen spoke about the Jewish community in Russia and the importance of Russian-speaking Jews in Israel to ties between the countries. That seems like a very nice and neat little conversation to have, but it possibly doesn't mention the, the rather bigger issues that Daniela has just mentioned. Yeah, and there are, there are bigger issues. And Israel, at the end of the day, despite all the exposures, is, is a small country. And as a small country, it had to play it very carefully because there are conflicting interests and, and one can understand it and I think the, the international community have been quite forgiving towards Israel sitting, as Daniela said, on, on defense, on, on, uh, on the issue of Ukraine. Though you would have loved, most of us would have loved to see Israel being on the right side of history, not on the wrong side of history, on the other side supporting Ukraine. But the issue of the Jewish community is important and of course the Syria, Hezbollah, Iran, a triangle is it's, it's important on having freedom of, of, of operation there. At the other end, what happened in this conversation with upset, and I think part of it is because the new foreign minister in Israel is completely inexperienced in, in diplomacy, and he says something like, oh, it's better that we won't talk too much about all this issue. And I, I agree one thing. If this government will talk less about everything, it will be in a much better position. But it will be even better position if we say we won't talk about what we are not going to talk about it. And in this sense, it's, it's, it's positioned itself in a place. We don't want to talk because it's not, it's not convenient, because we, we don't mind what's happening there as long as we can get our interests going. And I think this creates some anger, especially when Ukrainian cities are attacked in, in a vicious and aggressive way, the way it's done, and, and, and so many people, people are killed. And, and, and what Ukraine is asking for is to help with their defense system, with some humanitarian help, and this very, you know, very slow coming. And this also creates a problem for Ukraine, because Ukraine would no doubt have wanted to get to the Israeli foreign minister first. So there are there is talk that this is already souring relations with the with the Israeli government in in position for well matter of days. Well, I mean there isn't just there realistically there's not going to be much movement on this. You know, ultimately Ukraine wants air defense systems. Israel is not going to provide them because of its interests with Russia. Where Israel has taken action. I mean, what's quite noticeable, having just come back from Israel, I mean, there was already quite a large Ukrainian Jewish community um, in Israel, people with Ukrainian roots, and there are even more now. I met a lot of people who'd come fairly recently. Israel's law of return means that if you have a Jewish grandparent, you can um, move to Israel and become a citizen. And in times of war, I mean, this happened in 2014 as well. Uh, in times of conflict and war, there have been quite a few thousand um, Ukrainians going there. Humanitarian aid as well, not particularly controversial. But um, relations are souring. I mean, mo most recently over um, votes by the International Court of Justice and other international justice mechanisms over uh, the illegality of the occupation, uh, Israel extremely peeved that Ukraine voted um, in favour of scrutinising uh, Israel, whereas expect its allies to abstain or vote against. Well, 
strategically, though, for Ukraine, focus now on international justice as a really key part of its strategy to combat Russia and really doing quite well when it comes to prosecuting um, war crimes and building an international coalition. It shows that as far as Ukraine is concerned, supporting the the legitimacy of international justice is much more important right now to its interests than not annoying Israel. There is a really difficult situation now, though, for, well, no, it's all pretty difficult, but if you look at the way that Iran and Russia have teamed up, Yossi, Mm. that forces Israel's hand a little, doesn't it? Yes, and we see the, the response, especially when the issue of drones in Israel already attacked Iran and drones uh, airfields, destroying hundreds of them. This is the way that the Middle East works, and there are conflicting interests. And on the one hand, you cooperate with one country that has interest with a country that you are in, and not at best of terms. That's the case sometimes with the UAE, for instance, and Iran. And it's it's a very fluid situation internationally, and that's what all we can expect. The question is, at what point you make a principle? foreign policy, an ethical one. I know it's not very popular sometimes to talk about ethical foreign policy. But again, when Daniela mentioned that, you know, Israel absorbed refugees, actually they didn't absorb that many refugees because you say, actually by law they have to accept every Jew that wants to move into Israel. This is the law. So actually the, the number of refugees that are not by law anyway, not can only immigrate to Israel, but actually become, to a, they can actually run to the Knesset tomorrow, very few. So in this sense, Israel could have shown different, but former Interior Minister Ayelet Sheked, which probably was the most inhumane Interior Minister in Israel history, made a point not to accept uh, uh, Ukrainian refugees that are not Jewish. So I think you could have seen, all right, you understand the Syrian issue, you understand the Iran issue, there is an ongoing war, what Israel called war between wars with, with, with Iran and in Syria and with the Hezbollah. But nothing should have stopped Israel with except more, uh, more refugees that are not Jews because they are, not, they are, they are immigrants. Tell us a little bit more about the, this cultural aspect. I mean, we'll go into the international view once again in a moment, but the idea that Israel and the, the number of Ukrainian Jews who you saw when you were around in, in, in Jerusalem, and also if you go to the town of, I think it's Uman in Ukraine, which has this enormous Jewish centre to it. You're laughing about it, Yossi. I mean, there is this, there is this interconnectedness. Okay, yeah. Yossi, I pick up from you. I'll let you pick up on that one because you, you sort of, you, you raise a smile. It's, it's, it's a religious place and every Rosh Hashanah, the beginning of the year, you have thousands of well, let's put it like this, only men are coming because the women have to stay at home. But they have a really, really good time. <laughs> they have a very good time in, 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 in Ukraine, obviously for religious reasons, not any other reason. And, 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 and even during war, because there is some obsession among the Orthodox with graves, which is, by the way, very un-Jewish because graves are and cemeteries regarded as impure in, in, in Judaism, that, for instance, People that call Cohen priests are not even allowed to enter. But it's it's a development with the, the old, among the ultra orthodox. So thousands of ascend on 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 Oman, for instance, uh, every year. It's it's a strange development in in Judaism. So all, you see, I, I think in many ways what we see generally in Israel is the, its relation between what you you know the diaspora in Israel is developing in in, in in a strange way. Some of them are longing into what used to be there and the culture there because they feel less sense of belonging there, but develop also nationalism inside Israel and became so complex that I wonder if they can 
make sense of it. I mean, I think a lot of Israelis are quite surprised at how Ukraine seems to be handling this this current crisis. And the fact that Ukraine, which also has a a very deep and dark history of anti-Semitism, now has a Jewish um, leader in in, um, Volodymyr Zelensky. But at the same time, people are proud that this Jewish comedian has been such a a, a great, uh, you know, just absolutely heroic leader. But as far as Israelis are concerned, that is a conflict that's going on over there um, of kind of limited interest. Um, As Yossi said, the idea of accepting refugees, even though Ukrainian refugees have been rather more popular in Europe, perhaps down to their skin colour. I mean, who who could imagine? As opposed to other previous waves of, of refugees. This doesn't really... Um, this is not something that Israelis in general would, would, would even contemplate. This is a, a small part of a foreign policy of a new incoming, of a new government, which, I mean, if this is as bad as it gets, then I think Israel will be very, very lucky. Um, we can expect more, we can expect worse, we can expect less, lack of experience. And given uh, Benjamin Netanyahu's um, long-standing and perhaps justified obsession, we can see a lot more relating to Iran. We will see also, um, if anything is to, to go by for the last couple of days, perhaps a changing role that Israel is, is occupying now because the US Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, asked Eli Cohen to convey a message to Russia during their call on Monday. So what can the United States see in this ability to talk to Russia now through Israel? And there were talks before, and actually Naftali Bennett, when he was prime minister, was one of the very few to meet uh, Putin at the time. So there was this kind of discussion. Can really anyone expect Israel to play the third party, the mediator between Russia and Ukraine and bring to diplomatic end to this war? I doubt it. I don't think Netanyahu is the one that can have the influence. There is a possibility that if Putin, for instance, want to use the good offices... Of, of Netanyahu and use it as a kind of in-between and say, I won't go through Washington, but I will go through the Israeli government. He might do that. But to think that Israel has so much influence either in, in, in Moscow or in Kiev will be a bit naive. You're listening to the Monocle Daily. The time here in London is 18.14 and I'm joined round the studio table by Daniela Pellet, managing the editor of the Institute for War and Peace Reporting and by Yossi Meckelberg, Associate Fellow at Chatham House and a lecturer in international relations at the University of Roehampton. And we move now to Cuba because the US is reopening its visa and consular services at its embassy in Cuba. It's the first time it's offering to do so since a series of unexplained health problems were experienced by diplomatic staff five years ago. Um, Yossi, I'll begin with you because you're you're a bit of a fan of Cuba. You're a Cuba <laughs> aficionado. I think this is why this is on the, the running order today. Um, just recap what happened in 2017. It was it was something that led to a drastic reduction in the number of Americans, in, in, diplomatic Americans in Cuba, didn't it? I think, first of all, we have always to remember that Cuba is domestic politics in the United States. It's not foreign policy. It's go historically, actually, that attempts to buy Cuba twice and definitely post-revolution 1959 with the immigrants in Miami. And if you want to win elections, you need Florida and the Cubans community, Cuban community in, in, uh, in Florida hates basically the communist regime and, and, and definitely the Castros when they were in power. And as a result of it, you need to pander to, to Cubans in, in, in Florida in order to win, win elections. This is one side of that. Now, 
let's go back to when Obama, towards the end of the Obama administration and the opening up to, to, to Cuba. Now, it's not to say, you know, being a fan of Cuba doesn't mean to being a fan of some of the things that take place in Cuba. The Cuban people are wonderful and I think they deserve better than what they have now. There are violations of human rights and we saw the crackdown on, 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 on human rights and demonstrations there. On the other hand, we, we, we need to remember that Cuba is under... American sanctions since 1960, the longest sanction that you can remember, that actually kept the Castros in power for all, the, the, all this time. Now Obama tried to open up and then came Trump and changed it. What happened with this kind of cyber attack? Or, we, we don't know. I was a few times during this time in, in, in Havana and no one could tell you actually who were be, be, be behind People this People were experiencing attack. strange sort strange of health issues. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I was told actually in one of the hotels that I stayed there was an attack on this hotel, so I don't know what's going to happen. Feeling okay? I'm feeling <laughs> well for now. So it's, it's, it, there are a lot of rumors going about it in Havana and we, no one knows. I mean, some people must know what happens behind it. Now, what, what Trump did is close. And now one of the things that's very, very difficult for Cuba, and if they ask to go to another country for us for visa, when your salary is around $30 per month, it means that the cost of it has become almost, makes it almost impossible to travel. And, and that's what happened. Now, with COVID, when there was hardly any tourism, which is a major source of income, with Bolsonaro basically expelling most of the medical staff from, from, from Brazil, again, another great source of, of income, the, the economic situation in, in, in Cuba deteriorated. Now, hopefully, with now these changes now, that will enable some activity, more tourism coming back to, to, to Cuba, this, this situation would improve. We are seeing a lot of people fleeing. Cuba now, though, aren't we, Daniela? I mean, it's being described as the greatest migratory flight from Cuba in decades, and this will be placing pressure on the Biden administration to open more legal, easier pathways to Cubans, because many of them are still trying to get to Florida by the sea. By sea. Absolutely. And as Yossi said, the pandemic has been incredibly injurious for the Cuban economy. And you have a, see a situation where uh, despite the, the you know much vaunted communist policies, the only way people can really get food is to buy, spend dollars in shops. Otherwise, nothing, uh, nothing is available. Um, but but the thing is about the American policies. I mean, the, the Obama detente was you know really it seemed uh, you know his um, a visit in two thousand sixteen. Um, it was a deal waiting to happen. It wasn't a particularly. Uh, um, sterling e example of of statecraft, but actually, um, as in relations apparently improved, human rights in Cuba deteriorated. It wasn't accompanied with any kind of action supporting civil society, which is still, despite all the pressures, vi vibrant and flourishing in Cuba. And um, allowing visas and opening that up is 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 one thing. But what about support for? Um, the artists and for the cultural figures and the journalists and people who are trying to make uh, a difference. And the Cuba now is very different from the Cuba of, of 2015, 2016 as well, not, not least because of internet penetration. There is much, much more access to in information uh, and much more uh, ability to communicate. So some kind of economic movement 
is all very well, but I think political reform, there are, people are hungry for that on the island. And how does, I mean, Daniela has this sort of singled out an enormous problem that we have here, because at the moment the issue of economic help that is being given to Cuba by the United States is that the ability for people to get out, that does not sustain, rebuild or nourish a country, does it? I think, first of all, immigration always serves as, as a as a pressure valve in, in Cuba. It allowed to take the pressure out what happens in Cuba by people emigrating. So that's, that's actually the, 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 the Castro regime was quite clever about it instead of building the pressure inside. I must say, the, but Daniel, what you say about artists, I spoke to artists, many artists in, 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 in Cuba, and they learned on their own way to, to, to protest. And they express it in, in in different ways. Now, are they are they, you know do they find it difficult with the police? Yes, sometimes they find it difficult, but they way their own they find their way to express it. What do you mean, it, like self censorship and not? No, not self censorship. It's a clever way to protest in a in in a way. I'll give you an example in a place that you know there is a big picture and say you know with the. the the pictures and images of of Che Guevara and and the Castros and. The, in Vegas, and on top of it, bottles of Coca-Cola. Now, everyone didn't understand, you know, what they are doing. Is there actually, it's a protest about, about what's happening in Cuba. So, this artist, for instance, told me, yes, the police come and ask me, you know, what it's all about because they, they know it's protest. I said, oh, it's just art, you know, I wanted to see how Cuba is developing and evolving and we can put together communism and Coca-Cola. But you have other artists and you have other cultural figures and you have the civil society activists and journalists who are harassed and who Correct. are detained. Uh, it's not really moving forward saying you can have a mural with a picture of, with a Coca-Cola uh, It's, it's a process. Again, we are doing the, but in the, the West. But the process is not moving in the right direction. Uh, the problem with the West is always we want other countries to change in the pace that, pace that we are not moving. With all when due respect, United... Yossi, I think Cubans want to change in their yeah, pace. I don't think anyone's I, trying to enforce and, democracy and, and trust on me, Cuba. In all my conversation, I'm not one to keep my opinions to myself, as you know. And when they say we don't want reforms because we want updates, I say, OK, call it updates or call it reforms. It's, it's, it's the same thing. But, you know, country like the United States, that in the 1960s, as a black person, you couldn't even sit in the same place in a bus. And it took nearly 200 years. And it's still you have, uh, you have civil rights that are fought for there. We expect other countries to change overnight. We need to engage with them. And sanction is not the way to do it. How do you build trust and how you change societies by actually not by putting sanction on these countries, not by making their life misery or miserable, but actually work with them together. But when you have zero trust, it doesn't work. I don't think it's trust. Again, I don't think I don't think trust is is what I think. I think Cuba needs democracy, human rights, and I think we need to listen to the civil society activists and uh, the the very the small but very very brave independent media uh, who want change a little bit faster and perhaps human rights rather than you know a, an extra ration of, of rice um in the government handouts we'll have to move on there finland's <laughs> culture minister i think this might continue after we stop broadcasting uh, finland's <laughs> culture minister has said he's worried his country's language will be pushed out of universities and academic institutions it's emerged that four out of five master's theses at helsinki's alto university are written in english well let's get an explainer first from our resident finn marcus hippie 
In Finland, science and culture minister Petri Honkonen has been voicing concern about the future of the Finnish language. This time the issue is not that we call hot dogs hot dogs instead of nakkisampulat, or that we casually talk about deadlines instead of määräajat. What is bugging Minister Honkonen is what's happening at universities. A majority of graduation theses are now published in English. For example, at the Helsinki University, only one in five come out in Finnish. The concern, shared by many others, is that as English gradually gains more ground in academia and in the international world of business, Finnish will suffer and gradually regress into a second-rate language. But there is a counter-argument. Finnish is notoriously hard to learn and foreigners in the country have often struggled with finding employment. That is why I'm delighted when I now sometimes have to speak English when placing my orders at Helsinki's restaurants. And as Finland Once population gets older, we do need more migrants to work in the country. So something will have to change to make Finland more attractive for young professionals. Requiring less perfect Finnish skills and using English more widely in the society may be just what we need. Well, of course, Marcus Hippie there helping us with our vocabulary. Um, there will be tests on what hot dog and deadline is later in the programme. I have the words in front of me. I have no idea how to say them. And I think that's a problem that Marcus raises, isn't it? Finnish is an absolute headache to learn. But very cool. Oh, yes. I think very cool. I mean, look, I... As <laughs> no a, one's denying the coolness as of Finnish. As, as a British person, we are famously, famously bad at, at learning languages. So I don't. I mean, we, we've kind of given up. I don't think they even teach them languages in school anymore. So the idea that you can go to a country and the language is either completely uh, incomprehensible because nothing really to do with Latin languages, but everyone speaks English is an absolute godsend. It is wonderful because it means that we can go to Finland and we don't need Marcus Hippie to help us order a, um, a, hot, dog. a, a hot dog. I'm <laughs> going to look that up in a minute. But, I mean, does it... I think from from the point of view as, you know, as an academic and a lecturer and a teacher, how important is it for a piece of work to be written in English in order for it to either gain credibility or an audience? Or, or is it actually, I don't know, a dilution of expression? I think for all of us that are not... In, for instance, we are not. It's not our mother tongue speaking English or writing English. We know that sometimes there is always a missing phrase there, something that we feel and we can't always translate into into another language. And I'm sure it's when you are in Finland or in any other country. And I, yes, with my students and you know teaching in a very international environment, you see sometimes when I read the essays, read the exam, I kind of see the way they translate and how it, it's an expression of culture, an expression of of expression of Of, of their experiences. So I think languages are important. And then at the same time, we need also common language that we can actually share, that people, all of us understand. So I think it's actually the balance, not losing kind of the languages that not many people speak. And again, as you know, not many people, that many people speak Hebrew. And we and 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 we are using a lot of 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 of, of terms in, in in English and many other languages. Depends where people came from. But at the same time, and, and it helps them to express themselves more clearly, but at the same time, we don't. We need to find some common language that people can to share. Danelli, you, you nodded wisely at that point, but I do <laughs> want to know if there's an expression in Hebrew which the English language would be richer for learning and for adopting. 
Oh, so many. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. I mean, this is one language that I can speak, but as Yossi says, it's kind of of limited use when it comes to wider communication. But I'll let you as the native uh, (laughs) Hebrew speaker, there are many, many phrases, many rich, 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 rich phrases. But, you know, as as somebody also who works with uh, people from really across the world, I work with journalists from, uh, you know, Middle East, Caucasus, Central Asia, uh, Cuba, um, the idea that English is a lingua franca that isn't actually France, uh, French is, is, is very useful because it is very, very flexible. And I think it's quite, uh, it's quite um, uh, liberal as well. It can stand a bit of... Uh, of um, it's, it can be flexible. You can uh, speak it quite badly and get you, your point across. That's exactly the point. And that's what I say to, to journalists I work with and we work through translators. Don't worry about the language. It's not about idiom and it's not about grammar. It's about facts. And, and, and English is a really good way to um, convey that. And it can be, as well, it can be edited easily. Do you find, Yossi, when you're marking your students' um, essays that they've whizzed it through Google Translate and hope for the best? <laughs> it depends on occasion. <laughs> but at, at the same time, again, you sometimes ask yourself, am I looking at the content itself and their analysis or I need to look into grammar? Or are they using exactly the same phrase? Or, or you know, is this the right word exactly to express? And I, want, and I think we learn because... Definitely in the UK, it's such an international environment in, in academia, in the, the world of think tanks, that you have to be more lenient that, for instance, I didn't teach much in Israel, but, you know, in my early days in academia, I would probably be much stricter about the grammar, much stricter about the expression, because you say, oh, this is your, your mother tongue, you can't do all of this, which I think, yeah, it's, it's a kind of a... It's, it's, it's wonderful to teach people that come from so many different countries, so to actually use it, use it as a resource, not against them. I won't, stre- I won't press you for the uh, phrase that has made that could make the English language richer in, he- in, in Hebrew, but have a bit more time to think, because we've got a little <laughs> bit of time now to, to allow you to cogitate. Um, because we're going to cover some news now that has struck fear into the heart of this particular broadcaster, at least. Uh, the UK's <laughs> Prime Minister, Rishi Sunak, has said that all pupils in England, goodness help us, should study maths in some form until they are 18. One of the biggest challenges in mindset we need an education today is to reimagine our approach to numeracy. As Chancellor, I introduced Multiply, a new program to give hundreds of thousands of adults the opportunity to get the basic numerical skills they need. But we're one of the few countries not to require our children to study some form of maths up to the age of 18. Right now, just half of all 16 to 19 year olds study any maths at all. Yet in a world where data is everywhere and statistics underpin every job, letting our children out into that world without those skills is letting our children down. So we need to go further. I am now making numeracy a central objective of our education system. 
My goodness, who would ever think to let their children out into a world of statistics without adequate protection and preparation? Daniela Pellet, I must confess, we were all pulling faces when that happened, didn't I we? have to say, I see eye to eye um, with you when it comes to, to maths. I mean, it's rather terrible that we it's acceptable in our society to say, oh, I'm terrible at maths, I can't do maths at all, because we wouldn't, we wouldn't be so casual about saying, oh, I can't read a word. But <laughs> we somehow, we managed to get, get through school, we managed to have, uh, you know, enough enough maths to enable our, our our daily living. I mean, what horrifies me about uh, this is not you know, the horror of having to do maths until you're 18, but also the horrible failure of comms and policy that it represents. I don't honestly uh, understand why, in the face of a collapsing NHS and cost of living crisis and social care going um, from disaster to disaster, the Prime Minister thinks that somehow this is the way to distract the public and get headlines. Um, nothing is going to happen. This is not a policy that has any legs at all. I was wondering whether this was actually the words of a man who's clearly very good at maths. <laughs> Probably it is. And I, I think also considering the government before him, the 45 days, they definitely couldn't make Not so great at maths, could, that one. Not no. could make the sums up. So I think this is one of the conclusions. But uh, and we are still paying for that. I, I will be a minority again here today. I think it's not a bit. I don't know if it's until 18, but there is really gap. Again, I'll be the kind of the, the nerdy, boring person. We need here. nerdy, boring people to keep to keep things afloat, Yossi. Thank but you. I I, I, I I taught last term uh, research methods. And I feel that you can't do it unless they know statistics, unless they can actually understand if you read any service, because you see so many times, including us, I'll, I'll wear now my journalistic hat. People are reading some, the sum up of some surveys, but they don't always understand what happened, the research methods behind it. And then you draw the conclusion sometimes, you take it, you, I mean, generally we do two, three steps ahead of it because we don't always get the research methods to see how you got into this, how you're sampling, what can you actually deduce from all of That's it. That's perhaps not an issue that you need to know maths. It's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a question that you need to be more inquiring and more inquisitive. That's critical thinking. Let's, let's teach critical thinking till the age of 18. But I'd it's agree part there. of it. Let's be reasonable about maths, guys. Completely, but including <laughs> its math as well. <laughs> not math in a boring way. You can actually st- teach math in a... In, in, in an interesting way, I just can say some anecdote, because I used to teach most of my life in an American system. In American system, because of the liberal studies where you need to take math at one point. And of course, my students of politics will try to delay it always as much as they could. <laughs> then they got to their last year and still took first year math because they were so afraid of it. And then we had a wonderful lecture that made it fun for them. Said, oh, we actually enjoyed it. So there are ways to teach it. It doesn't have to be Every month, and you don't expect them to be the great mathematicians of this world, but being able, it's, it should be about functional math. I, I would agree with you on the functional aspect. I think the only thing that Daniela and I are both the parents of 10 year old boys, and we are currently trying to understand well, I'm failing to understand my son's maths homework. So advanced it is now that actually they're, they're learning stuff now that. 16-year-olds were learning 20, 30 years ago and it's it's absolutely bananas and it's very dry and very self-contained. And I wonder whether we can learn maths in a more practical way so they can help us to become good money managers, good business yeah. people, with good a, economists. With a calculator, ideally. Exactly. 
Because we have calculators now, surely. <laughs> I think there There's is more to math than calculator. But what you say is actually, if you know more math, it will also improve your parenthood. So there is an extra, well, yes, <laughs> extra um, benefit you can help your children. Too. Yeah, well, yeah, okay, no. <laughs> I'm absolutely failing in that thing. But I think there's one thing to raise as well is that, you know, organizations like the OECD, and, you know, just speaking mm. a couple of years ago, there's the Italian minister, Patrizio Bianchi, was saying that coming out of COVID, the maths bit and the English bit and the rote learning and the history and all those bits that we can now look up on the internet, which are which were useful and brilliant 20, 30 years ago, are great, but machines can now replace these skills. So we need to do things like leadership, teamworking, problem solving, communicating, the stuff that actually is the, the, the bit that the computer and the calculator can't replace. I think we're pretty slow at catching up. I mean, I, you know, I say it flippantly, but I do think critical thinking is going to be a much more vital skill for children and, and teenagers uh, in an era of, of, of overwhelming information and overwhelming disinformation. And that's something that you can't really replicate with a calculator, much as I love calculators. It's, it's, again, it's, 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 about, it's someone that studied math until the age of 18 because I studied, elect <laughs> I, because I studied electronics as, as, uh, in, in high school. It helps you with critical thinking. It sharpens the mind in many ways. Now, do we? A lot of people don't like some math because it's it's frustrating in many ways because there is an answer to things. But actually, if you learn the philosophy be, behind math, it helps you a lot with critical thinking. It helps you with logical thinking. So it's not just math because yes, there are things that you really <laughs> frustrating learn. But when you actually get it, it helps you with very many other aspects. I think you've just signed yourself up as my son's maths teacher. Because <laughs> um, you're talking to a woman whose sum total of ability to use a calculator is that I can still make the word boobies on it. Um, finally, I don't know if you can whistle, but this woman no. can, who we're just about to hear from. Um, because a list of great pop records featuring whistle is short but strong. Let's think of Otis Redding's Dock of the Bay and the Bangles Walk Like an Egyptian. Um, so if whistling is during a renaissance, it may be down to one woman, an Australian woman who's based in Los Angeles. She's called Molly Lewis, and she's worked with the likes of Dr. Dre, Carano, and the Orchestre Nationale de Paris. Uh, Molly spoke to Monocle's Andrew Muller a little earlier, who asked her when she'd first realised that whistling could actually be quite profitable. There was a moment where I realised I was particularly good at it, and first was for my birthday one year, my parents got me a CD by a whistler named Steve the Whistler Herbst. And it was him doing medleys of, like, memory from cats and, mm. you know, all of these things. I know they must have gotten it for me because I was whistling a lot around the house. But I remember putting it on and hearing him whistle, and I could whistle along to it. And I realized, like, wow, if Steve can have a CD and I can do what Steve can do, then maybe one day I could have a CD. You know, I, I kind of realized, like, wow, I'm as good as Steve the Whistler Herbst. So that, that was a revelation. <laughs> but once you understand that you are good at this thing, what's the process in working on it? Because with a musical instrument or even more conventional vocalizing, i.e. singing, that seems fairly straightforward. There's probably people you can go to who will teach you. You can practice at home. But if you're trying to nurture a talent for whistling, what is the way forward? Well, it was very difficult. I grew up playing piano and I had mm -hmm. a piano teacher and she was also a voice teacher. As soon as I started um, 
recognizing that I had this talent and something I wanted to hone, I remember asking her one day, like, can you help me with this? What should I do? Should I do scales? Do you know anything about this? And she had no idea. Then I went to YouTube, which kind of opened up this world of the whistle community. And there was a whistler I started following named Whistler's Brother. See what he's done there. Yeah. <laughs> and actually, I think my early YouTube name was Whistler's Sister. Yeah, I followed him and he had tutorials and things. He was a really uh, interesting looking guy. He had these like kind of Matrix style dark glasses on and he would be doing all of these like free jazz whistles and I remember commenting on his video and asking him a question about the whistling competition mm. and he replied and answered so I kind of outsourced my questions online to other whistlers that I found. It's not unheard of for whistling to appear in modern popular song. One thinks of Otis Redding sitting on the dock of the bay, the Beatles, the two of us, Scorpions Winds of Change which I assume whistlers get really tired of being <laughs> asked about. But you're in the unusual position of not using the whistle as an accompaniment to a song, but as the lead instrument, if you will. How do you go about composing for the whistle? I always had a very good ear, but mm. I, I didn't think I could be a musician. I was never in bands. When I started taking the whistling more seriously and started performing for people, it started as like a lounge show where with a band I would perform covers of classical pieces or jazz and bossa nova, pieces that I knew would translate well as a whistle. And it's only in the last few years that I've been composing my own songs and I don't know, I kind of come up with melodies and I voice record them into my phone and uh, take them to the studio. And it's a lot of collaboration. A few of the songs were things I kind of picked out on guitar, but a lot of it is working with other musicians and kind of making music with them and kind of writing melodies over the top of things. This is another thing I was wondering about, though, in terms of the practicality, whether when you're collaborating with other musicians and performing live with other musicians, and you are in Europe on tour, are there limits, I mean, technological limits in how loud everybody else can be? Because I'm assuming you can only amplify a whistle so far before it starts resembling feedback. Oh, yes. Wow. <laughs> yes. It's very difficult. And that's why we do a lot of sound checking. And I've been lucky to play with such wonderful musicians in LA and New York. And now here, I have this band that I've been touring with in Europe. And they are very sensitive, wonderful musicians, and everyone plays very quietly. It's definitely not a rock show, and we have to because the whistle is a quiet instrument, and it does start to feedback at a certain point. <laughs> and you're also presumably quite reliant on audiences being willing to buy into it enough to keep their yaps shut while you're performing. Uh, yeah, they have to keep their yaps shut, <laughs> but, you know, they do. It's maybe a thing about doing something quiet like you know the person who's talking loudly is the one out of place but yeah people listen and it's been really nice kind of seeing the response and how people take it you did have a brief experience some years ago with the curious world of competitive whistling you participated in a national whistling tournament in the united states i believe you performed a favorite of mine i have to say willie nelson's song crazy best known <laughs> as a hit for patsy klein are you still a participant in that kind of subculture at all 
Well, it was actually an international competition, that one. Forgive uh, me. Yeah, how dare you. Um, actually, that was my other big entry into the whistle world. I saw a documentary about this competition and realized it existed and went. And yeah, that was in 2012. Since then, I went to one other that was in L.A., But I was planning on going to Tokyo in October for the international competition in Tokyo. But Japan was a little bit difficult to get into the country still with the mm. COVID regulations, and I didn't go this year. I mean, it's obviously going to be competitive because it's a competition, but what kind of competitive is it? Is it one of these subcultures that's actually quite supportive and collegial? Or for some reason, I'm just finding it enormously amusing to imagine this whole kind of background subtext of bitching and backstabbing and attempts to sabotage each other. Oh, yeah, baseball bats to the <laughs> knee. No, I wish it was a bit more like that. That would be really funny and interesting. It's definitely a world full of very strange, interesting characters, and there are people who take it a lot more seriously than others, and you can see there's a bit of competitive rivalry going on, but for the most part, it's just a lot of people who never, ever get to be in a room with a group of people that they have something in common with like this, so it's friendly and fun. The Whistling Molly Lewis there speaking to Andrew Muller. And that's all we have time for on today's Monocle Daily. Well, actually, almost with the time we have. A big thanks to my panellists, Yossi Mackelberg and Daniela Pellet. Yossi, what's the expression in Hebrew that you they think the British would be find would find the English language enriched by? I think there is actually words that are very useful if you see kind of an organised disorder balagan. Balagan, okay. I think we've had that today. Uh, go on about you. <laughs> I think my, one of my favourite phrases is something that my mother says to my father several times a day, which is, which means, don't mix up, don't make it, don't mix up, mix up my brain. Excellent. I think we could all learn from that. Thank you all to my guests and to our producer, Lillian Fawcett, and researcher, Andre Nikolai Parminteran, and our sound editor was Adam Heaton. I'm Emma Nelson here in London. The Monocle Daily is back at the same time tomorrow. But for now, goodbye. Thank you very much for listening. <laughs>